If you have only been alive for 20 years or so, I imagine it could be quite easy to take technology for granted. And it can be easy for me, and I was born way back in 1970. I know that seems young to some and old to others, uh, but it has been a little bit of time. And yet, even I can take the technology for granted. Um, America's prosperity uh, has granted almost all of us access to technology that would have been considered utterly wondrous uh, just a few decades ago. And many have made uh, the connection over the years between national security and technological advance. Um, and I think that's, a, I think that's a, a really true connection. For instance, if a country is ravished with war, in other words, if the war is actually on the ground in that country, which we have not faced in our lifetimes in this country, but if that would be the case, well then, every resource used to develop technology is going to be entirely focused on defeating the enemy. You know, they're not tinkering with autonomous vehicles uh, that they hope to market to the uh, average citizen. And they're, they're making robots, but they're making them uh, with artificial intelligence to blow up the enemy. That's what they're looking to do. They're not looking to apply it to the life of its citizenship. And also, aside from war, if there's no economy, and if the people of a country are impoverished, then there's no market for gadgets and gizmos. Uh, everyone's focused on the simple basics of survival. Maybe technological efforts go into the basics of survival rather than quality of life. So let's face it, this is hard for most of us to imagine because all we've ever known is a prosperous nation. And there's a connection here between the fundamental, which is a secure and prosperous nation, and the desired outcome, which is um, increased quality of life through technological advancement. And the fundamental in this case is really national security. I think you could make a case for economy or some other aspects there, but the fundamental there is national security. And we may be tempted, in our, because of our lifetimes, uh, what we've experienced, excuse me, in our lifetimes, we may be tempted to take the fundamental for granted, the national security. We may feel like we've always had that. And maybe many Americans do take it for granted. Uh, maybe we all do. But the truth is, without, uh, without national security, there, there is no ubiquity of smartphones. There's no comprehensive coverage of the Internet. There are no hybrid electric vehicles. Uh, sorry, Sam Avalier. And, uh, and there's no, uh, something dear to my heart, there's no robot lawnmowers. And then what? And so there are some important connections to make in life between the fundamental and a desired outcome. What needs to be in place so that you get the outcome that you desire? That's certainly true with nations. Uh, but there's a more important connection for us to make today. We desire the Crossway Church would always stand firm in the faith, never leaving the gospel, never losing the gospel, and not wavering despite what winds or forces we may face in this world, including COVID-19. And that means all of us. That means you, by the way. All the members of the church. We are the church, and we desire for every member to stand firm in the gospel of Christ Jesus. And not only that, we also desire that Crossway Church 
would be effective in gospel ministry or mission in this world. We want to be effective to proclaim Christ in places both near and far. We want to be effective to advance the gospel both now and in the time to come, whatever time the Lord gives us. But in order for us to be firm over the long term, and in order for us to be effective everywhere and in all times for the gospel, a fundamental must be in place. It has to be there in order for our church to be firm in the gospel and effective for the gospel. Our health as a church is vitally connected to something that must reside among us. This isn't new, and it's something we've seen many times already in the letter to the Corinthian church, the first letter, and it's simply this, it's love. Love for our Lord and love for one another. Without it, as we've learned from 1 Corinthians 13, without love for our Lord, for one another, we are already dead. Now today, as I mentioned, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 24. This is the last message in our series in 1 Corinthians. I believe the Lord wants us to get this connection between the fundamental and the desired outcome. We want a healthy church. So we've got to have a fundamental, the fundamental of love. There are other, obviously, fundamentals we could argue for, but I think we need to focus on that today. And I'll hopefully make that clear here in a minute. But let's put it all into one sentence. Let's sort of sum it up. Let me say it like this. Love one another so that the church stands firm and becomes useful. Love one another so that the church stands firm and becomes useful. When I say stands firm, I mean stands firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ, never wavering from it, not changing it to fit whatever worldly or fleshly desires may come along, but being faithful to it. And let's love one another so that we can become useful. And when I say become useful, I mean become useful for the gospel. I mean in proclaiming Christ. I mean becoming effective witnesses. I mean in, in gathering in the harvest that the Lord is already um, bringing about in this world. Let us be useful in that way. So, did you ever put together the idea, um, let's get specific, did you ever put the, together, together the idea that your love for others in the church has everything to do with how faithful our church is in Christ and the gospel and how effective our church is for the gospel? Your love for others, your love for others, has everything to do with how firm in the gospel we are and how effective for the gospel we are. It's true. And we'll go over it here in these three points as we go through the passage. Now, let me give you the first point. The first point here is that love begins with righteousness. Love begins with righteousness. We've talked about the nature of love many times, and we will talk about it many more times, because God is love, and the work of Jesus Christ is born out of his love. Uh, Christ died for us in his love. He saves us because he loves us. Uh, God sent his son because he so loved the world. And so love is a huge category for the Christian. But we have to recognize that in the brokenness of humanity that what the world often calls love is not love at all. And so we've got to talk about, whenever we talk about love, we've got to think about 
what is it really? What is the nature of it? I can't just go along with what my feelings say love is or, or my notions of what love are or what the world says that love is. I have to get my idea of what love is from the scriptures. And that's not to say that, that um, people don't feel as if they're loving or they don't feel love. Uh, and it's not to say that they don't believe. Their perspective may be that they are loving. But I think it's important to recognize that those outside of Christ can't really understand love. They haven't experienced it in Christ Jesus. And so something is going to be lacking. Something's going to be missing, at least uh, to a degree. Christ is the perfection of love, and that's what we have in him. So think about it this way. When it comes to uh, a couple, a young couple, before they're married, they engage in inappropriate physical relationship. Outside of marriage, it really doesn't have to be a young couple, any couple engages in immorality, and they may tell others, they may tell themselves, they may think that they're engaging in physical intimacy because they love each other. And we get that, we get, what they're, we get why they're saying it, We're, they're, we understand that they, they say they feel that, they, they feel like they love the other person, they feel that they're expressing love, but in reality... It's actually the opposite. It's love in a sense, but it's not love for the other person. It's really love for their se- themselves. Because immorality, as we know, physical, uh, sexual physical relationship outside of marriage is sin against God. And it wrongs other people. It defrauds them, especially the, the partner in the immoral behavior. You're actually wronging them. You're defrauding them. You're, you're taking something from them that doesn't belong to you. And this is why so often couples that have had so much passion, they may call it passion, they may say I'm a passionate person, but people that have had so much passion before marriage, in other words, they engaged in immorality before marriage, they have great difficulty after they marry. Because their passion was not love as they suppose or think of it, but in fact their passion was a passion for their own pleasure and their own desires. It was selfish. It was self-centered love. It was self-love. And so they, they haven't really um, accessed real love there. If they actually loved the person, they would protect them, protect their purity, and make sure that uh, they married before they engaged in immoral behavior. So just because someone thinks they're loving or calls themselves loving doesn't mean that they are or even that they understand love. We have to have better thoughts of love. And that's why I want to take you to three critical verses in this sign-off portion of Paul's letter. It's the end of Paul's letter. It's the sign-off portion, but here's three critical verses. You're going to see that Paul raises themes from the entire letter here in the last chapter, and you're going to especially see that in these three verses. So, Go to verse 12 through 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12 through 14. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 
Let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. And these verses, they're, they're in a context here. So I want to focus on verse 12 and look at what, what's going on here in verse 12. And I think that it, there may be more than meets the eye initially. Remember this. Think about it. Apollos is mentioned elsewhere in this letter, right? It may surprise you to see that he's mentioned repeatedly. You might remember where he's first mentioned, but he's actually mentioned repeatedly in the early parts of this letter, this first letter to the Corinthians. And that's in chapter, he's first mentioned in chapter 1, verse 12. And remember that uh, after Paul greets them and expresses thanksgiving for the Corinthian Christians, uh, he, he starts off, he starts off his teaching really with some correction and some rebuke. He addresses their lack of unity. There's a lack of love among them. And it's shown through their disunity, their quarreling, their factions, and other ways. There's even criticism of Paul that he is going to address, even somewhat directly, somewhat in a roundabout way, but you realize there's, there's criticism there. And, and, and some of that criticism, criticism seems to go like this. You know, Paul says one thing, but Apollos says another, or Apollos says it better. Or it might have looked like this. We don't quite know exactly, but it might have looked like this. Peter, uh, Paul doesn't care for us like Peter cares for us. And so you have these factions, right? I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. And another faction says, I'm of Christ. And so mentioning Apollos here is connected to the subject matter when he mentions Apollos in 1 Corinthians 16, it's connected to the subject matter that he already addressed regarding how some of them view Apollos and the others, regarding these factions and these divisions, this disunity. That comes, as I said, from 1 Corinthians 1.12. You can look that up. If you want to turn there, you can, you can look there right away. But, but not only is Apollos mentioned there with the different factions, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or Peter, and Christ... But he's mentioned again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 49. Listen to this. When it comes to the criticism Paul was facing and the factions that were developing and what Paul is addressing, what he's rebuking them for. Paul writes, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, there he's mentioned again, are you not merely being merely human? What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he knew plant, neither he knew. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. That's from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 9. And then we go on. You see it again. Paul addresses it again. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 to 23, he writes, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Now there's Apollos mentioned again. So when Paul mentions Apollos here at the end, it is a bit of a loaded subject that he's getting into. Because right off the bat, he addressed them and, and said, look, I know some of you prefer Apollos to me. And, and you, you pitted us against one another and, uh, and you, you prefer maybe his style or his content or his manner. 
Maybe he gave you attention. Maybe you had more of a relational connection with him than you had with me. So Paul's addressing that, and he's bringing it up here at the end by raising Apollos again. Remember um, that Paul had shown them that their criticism of Paul, of himself, was off base. The reason he does this is not just personal. It's not just because he takes personal offense. It's because they're hurting the church through their unbiblical approach. And so when he, when he talks about the divisions, he gets to, here's why you have divisions, because you're, you're being critical and you're being wrongly critical. Remember, he tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let me read for you verses 1 to 5. Remember what he tells them there. He says, this is how one should regard us, meaning himself and Apollos. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So all that matters here is whether or not, Paul's saying, listen, no matter what you think of me, all that really matters is whether I'm faithful to Christ Jesus and to fulfill the stewardship, to be a steward of the responsibilities that he's given to me. As long as I am faithful to that, your judgment doesn't, doesn't matter uh, that much. But not only that, don't get offended, he's saying my judgment doesn't even matter. Whether I think I'm guiltless or not, all that matters is the Lord's judgment. And, and just relax, God's going to, the Lord himself's going to judge all those things in time. And, and, uh, and it, and he'll determine whether one has been faithful or not. And so he's telling the Corinthians, listen, you're, you're caught up in the wrong thing, and because you're caught up in the wrong thing, it's, it's personally harmful, and it's bringing factions to the church. And when Paul brings this up, in, in, uh, he brings up Apollos in chapter 16, that's, that's part of what he's checking in on. And Paul goes on, in chapter 4, to rebuke the Corinthians with this. And, and in this, here again, you see Apollos included. And I think this is the last time Apollos is included up until the end of the letter. He writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so Paul narrows it down. And and I think when he does here, he narrows it down to him and Apollos in chapter 4. And I think you begin to get a, a better picture of the factions that are happening. Some people are highly preferring Apollos, which is, which is part of the reason why Paul's addressing this. And we're going to get to the way he addresses it in just a moment. But we should probably note 
that it's unlikely that any of these Corinthians, in their factions and criticisms, would have seen themselves as unloving. I think this is very important to note. We have the same temptations. We, we have the same weaknesses as a church. We're, we're uh, just a group of people. We're sinners saved by grace. We're sinners and saints because of the Holy Spirit in us. We have the same uh, propensities as the first century church. We're not different. And so it's, it's likely that if you were to ask these Corinthians, like, hey, you know, you're, you, you seem to be very critical of Paul, but you really think highly of Apollos. Doesn't that seem a little unloving to you? Does it seem like you might be contributing to the factions in the church? Does it seem like you might be harming the church? Do you, do you think you might be contributing to the church not standing firm or not being effective in the gospel? Do you think you're not being loving? It's almost certain that they would have replied, Oh, no, not at all. What I'm doing is very righteous. And this is precisely the point. Paul is teaching them what love actually looks like not enough for them to think that they're loving or to think that they're righteous or virtuous in any way. All that matters is if they really are. And God's grace gives us the ability to become truly loving. And now here we are at the end of the letter, Paul bringing up Apollos again. And as I read to you before, I'll read verse 12 again. Now concerning our brother Apollos... I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. And do you know what Paul's doing here, at least in part? Do you know what he's doing here? He's saying, I know Apollos. I'm close with Apollos. I talk with Apollos. He's saying to the Corinthians and their factions, and, and those that, that highly prefer Apollos, his teaching, his manner, his methods, his style, his way. He's saying to them, there is no breakdown between me and Apollos. There's no lack of love between me and Apollos. There's only support between me and Apollos. And so when you pit Apollos and I against one another, you're creating a faction out of something wrong inside of you. And it hurts the church. And so... Paul's taking a step further. He says, you know what I'm doing in response? He, one of the things that, to mention here is when they write now, or when Paul writes now concerning our brother Apollos, this, this is the formula he uses when he's answering the questions that they sent to him in their letter to him. And this is the very last question that he answers. He actually answers two in this portion of the text in chapter 16. And this is the very last one. So they asked him about Apollos. They asked him if Apollos would come. And Paul's saying, let me answer your question about Apollos coming to you. I know that some of you want Apollos to come for good reasons, but some of you want Apollos to come for bad reasons. You don't see them as bad reasons, but they are. And you're pitting us against one another and as part of the factions. He's saying to them, let me explain this to you. There's no breakdown between me and Apollos. The only breakdown is in your mind about the way you view us. And... Um, and you know what I did in response to, even if you were badly motivated in asking me uh, to, to tell you if Apollos is coming? Paul's saying, I know you might not prefer me. Here, here's what I did in response. I urged him to go to you. I want you to have Apollos. I want him to come minister to you because he's faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, as am I. 
And so I want you to hear from him. And I urged him to go. But it was not at all his will to come to you. And, and that phrase, not at all his will, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? He doesn't just say, he can't come right now. Or he thought it would be better to come later. No, instead he, he uses some expression here. Not at all his will. It's not what he wants to do right now. Maybe he doesn't want to come to them right now because he has other mission that he wants to accomplish. Or maybe he doesn't want to go to them right now because he knows that some of them are pitting him against Paul. And he said to Paul, we don't know this, but because of the unity between them, it's possible he would say to Paul, you know what, you teach them and then I will come as soon as I can. I have these other things to do anyway. It's possible, we don't know. But we do know that it was not at all his will to come to them right now, which is a very interesting phrase. Paul's saying, Apollos and I are unified in our love. You should be too. And the reason that you're off kilter is because you have the wrong expectations and you're not really being loving, even though you probably would say that you are. And so love begins with righteous thinking. It begins with truth. Let us think spiritually. One more application point from this. Uh, I, I really do think these, uh, these verses here are so key to chapter 16 uh, that I think it's good to spend a little extra time here. One more point of application is that Paul says in verse 13, he says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And he goes on to tell them to love, love each other. Love each other in everything you do. But I want to point out where he says here, act like men. Paul tells them, act like men. Now, obviously, he's talking to the men of the church. And it's not that this letter isn't for the women. This letter is for the women. But something that's key for the church, is critical for the life of the church, is that the men act like men. And it was kind of funny, I... I think in times past, even in my own lifetime, I wouldn't have thought twice about saying that to the church. But, but nowadays, you almost have to wonder, am I allowed to say that? Are men any different than women? Uh, am I implying something um, discriminatory against women? When I tell men, act like men, hey men, you know what that means. Act like men. Well, you know that we teach complementarianism, which means that uh, we believe that God made men and women to be complementary to one another. They are equal in value and dignity before God, but they are different in role, that one of the defining factors that God gives to our lives is whether he makes us male or female. And that's good and should be embraced. And only now in these confusing days is that, is that rejected as one of the ultimate rebellions of humankind is to reject the gender that God assigned to them. And so here we have, in just regular speech, Paul saying, act like men. Hey, men, act like men. Well, what does a man act like? Well, we know that means strength. It means decisiveness. It means initiative. There's headship in the home and in the church there. And so men should act like men. And I know, by the way, that women, godly women, rejoice when men act like men. And because we see Paul telling the men to stand firm, he's saying stand firm, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be strong. But he also connects it to love in verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. And so Paul is showing us 
what it means to be strong, for men to act like men. He, he's saying, I, I fight for those that I love. I, I fight for their sanctification. I fight for their satisfaction in Christ alone. You, a man fights, a godly man fights for the good of the souls of others. He fights for love. He fights for unity in the church. He fights for it. He fights. He's strong so that they can be effective for Christ in this life. They can stand firm. They can be effective in gospel mission. A godly man doesn't lay down and let disunity or fake love or false teaching or division seep into the church. He doesn't let soggy-mindedness, confusion rule him. He fights for those he loves. Men act like men. And this is as true for a godly husband as it is for men in the church. So men of Crossway Church, act like men. Act like men. In the way the Word of God calls you to act like men. And not in the way of the world. Well, let's move on to the second point. Now, I won't spend as much time here. But the, the first point is that... Let me read that to you. Uh, that love begins with righteousness. In other words, the character of love, what, what we believe is love, matters. We need to understand it rightly. Okay. There we go. Secondly, love results in much good. Now, some view this chapter, like Charles Darwin viewed the appendix, as vestigial or useless, a useless organ that because of evolution, evolution in its manifold wisdom, decided that we no longer needed the appendix. And, um, and it turns out the appendix is useful, and I think we're learning more about that as we go. But, uh, but it was his thinking about evolution that drove his, him coming to the point of, oh, yeah, this, this must be useless. It can't be. It can't be that I just don't understand its function fully. <laughs> it can't be that I don't understand the body as much as I think I do. It has to be that it's useless. Can you see where his theology, his worldview... Uh, dictated to him the meaning of that organ. It fit nicely into evolutionary thinking, but turns out not to be true. And uh, some people view this chapter as just tacked on a bunch of stuff and directions tacked onto the end. And, and I think we have to be careful there, and we should recognize, again, this is the divine word of God. Our theology helps us understand what's really going on here, so it's meaningful to us. Not just a bunch of, of scattered ideas. There are different... Uh, uh, imperatives here, different um, principles, um, but they are related, and they're especially related to the rest of the book, just like we saw in verses 12 to 14. And so you're going to notice, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when Paul writes now concerning, he's addressing one of their questions. You're going to see that in verse 1. You can see it again in verse 12, as we already talked about. You're going to see a few others in here. Um, Paul's answering questions. Uh, I want to read... The whole, I'm going to read verses 1 to 18 to you because I, I, I love the idea of, of the, the church having had the whole book read uh, through the, the course of our expositional series. So let me read verses 1 through 18. I'll take a minute to do that here. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. 
If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you will help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up your, for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. And so along with what we talked about in our first point, love and righteousness, Paul also gives info on his, on his travel and ministry plans, info on Timothy's itinerary. Uh, he gives info about matters connected to Stephanus um, and those with him. And, and there are good theme connections for each of these through the letter of 1 Corinthians. But let me give you a quick focus on the second to last question from the Corinthian letter. And that's in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Now this regarded the collection for the saints in Judea during a famine they were facing. You may remember that Paul was taking up an offering for uh, the Jewish believers in the area of Jerusalem because they would face famine. And this is love for them. And what's powerful about this is it is it is a breakdown of massive racial barriers. Uh, Gentiles, believers, are giving to Jewish believers in need. And and actually it might I, I do think there was there was probably a lot of anti Semitism at the time, but but the uh the bigotry may have actually gone the other way quite a bit because uh Jewish people very much looked down on Gentiles and, and not for entirely bad reasons, right? They had lots of gods. They were pagans. Their thinking was very dark. And so the idea that these Gentile believers would take it to heart and give for the Jewish believers in need would be a powerful expression of love. And something we can learn from. And we should look for that opportunity. It kind of reminds you of when someone wrongs you. When you do good to the person who wrongs you, you're demonstrating love beyond what's typically known in this world. It's a grace that points to Christ. And we can look for those opportunities. But it's also worth noting here that Paul calls them the systematic giving. And I just want to point that out. He's saying to them on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, put something aside. And this is, I think, very simply put, but it's helpful to see it here as an example, is that systems bring effectiveness. And so systematic giving brings more effective giving. And this is effective on a number of, of, of levels. So if you give in a, a systematic way, I can think of three benefits off the top of my head. First of all, the amount is going to be greater than if you wait till uh, the, the one day. But if you say, let's give over this period of time. 
Secondly, the giving becomes doable because everyone can say, how am I doing this week? Okay, I have a little extra. I'll put that aside. How am I doing the next week? I have a little extra. I'll put that aside. And, 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 and so it, it's doable. It doesn't feel like I have to give a, a massive amount right away, but I can give something every time I get paid, and that's going to help. And then, and then also I think this kind of habitual practice, this kind of systematic practice, reinforces the truth more deeply into our lives that all that we have comes from God and all of our giving is worship to Him. And things like we ought to be looking out for the good of others as we do, for instance, in the Benevolence Fund. And so there's uh, a little note there just to pull it out and say, look at that. There, he's, he's calling them the systematic giving as a step in health for the church and maturity for the believer right there in 1 Corinthians 16. So you can see from the survey of subjects that there's this range of unity issues and range of mission issues. So for instance, how does the church regard Stephanus? Well, that's a unity issue. How do they regard him? If some regard him well, but some regard him uh, negatively, maybe they're jealous of him, or maybe they, they think poorly of him. Well, if you have it, then you, you, you end up with some disunity, and you can't be as effective when this key servant, who, by the way, might be, uh, be becoming an elder of that church, that might be what's happening here. Um, it, it's hard to, to get unity if, if some people are pulling against him. And so there's a, a, a unity issue, but there's also a mission issue. You know, how will they receive and help Paul? Take that subject that Paul addresses here. How will they receive him? How will they help him in mission? Are they unified on him? Are they unified on the idea? And so each of these issues that he's, um, that he's addressing go back to, to, to this, out, this desired outcome for the church, this idea of what a healthy church is and what we hope to be, unity and mission. And, um, and if there's a breakdown in, in unity, there's going to be a breakdown in mission as well. These go together. And so they're, they're not unrelated. Uh, you know, their heart for Stephanus or for Paul is going to translate into support for gospel work. And, um, and their love on the ground is going to uh, be what people experience that, that come into contact with that church. You know, ours is an age of compartmentalism. People are praised today for their ability to compartmentalize. But think of this, when it comes to the unity of the church and mission from the church, these are not divided issues. They are not at odds. It's up to us to make certain that we do not view unity in the church against, pitted against mission from the church. They operate together. They go together. They make each other more effective. So let me ask you, do you view the church's activity like fellowship or care groups, gatherings or service to one another? Do you view that as connected to mission? Because you ought to. And do you view your attitude about church life as part of what makes us effective in missions? When you serve someone in the church, as small as that may, as service may be, or, or as behind the scenes as it may be, you're affecting mission from the church. You absolutely are. You might not be able to see that line directly right away, but it's there. It's the way the church functions. The church operates in a holistic manner. Or do you view our efforts in mission 
as part of what builds up the local body. So we need to be engaged in gospel mission, in going, in sending, because it's part of what builds us up. Do you view it that way? You should view it that way. We have to have both. They go together. They are gloriously connected. Love results in all kinds of good. And this is what it means to think spiritually. Well, we've seen that that love flows out of righteousness or has to be marked by righteousness. And we've seen that love results in much good as we see these, this list of things that are being addressed here, each of them a unity issue and a mission issue. We also have to see that love has to be expressed. And here is uh, quite a compact ending to this letter. And you're going to see it's very focused on love and the expression of love. Not just how we feel about love or think about love, but that love is communicated. Let me read it to you, and then we'll take it in order. Okay, so uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 19 through 24. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And take a look at that verse 24. That it ends with, May my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so you see this here first. He says the churches of Asia. He says um, they greet you. And, 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 and uh, Ephesus, where he's at, is the capital of Asia. And so he talked about earlier, he talked about his opportunity there. He talked about the fierce opposition, the adversity. He's probably, when he talks about the churches of Asia greet you, so he's probably talking about the region and not just Ephesus itself. And the fact that he's there in the capital of Asia and having such a great effect is exciting. The gospel's going forward there, and he's probably sending greetings from, you know, well, he say, it says from all these churches, sending you greetings. And so they send, they send you greetings. By the way, have you experienced this? This is a good time to think about this. Think about, you know, when you jump on a video call, it's just funny, this little light goes on inside of people when they see the face of another, and they get to greet each other. They say, hi, good to see you. Just seeing each other um, is, uh, is a sweet thing. You know, so... Um, normally we, we have this on Sunday mornings, uh, but the, uh, a week or so ago, one of my daughters was on the phone with a couple of friends from church, and uh, I just popped my head in to say hi, and it was funny because I wanted to say hi. Now, now I like to talk to the teens of our church, but I don't talk to them so much. But here it was like, oh, there's, there's people from the church, let me say hi. And so I got to say hi, and what was funny is, and I don't know for sure, but it actually seemed like these teenage girls... Uh, enjoyed saying hi to me as well, <laughs> which is kind of a funny thought, you know. Um, but nonetheless, I think a little light goes on in our hearts when we get to greet each other. And, and I think that's similar to what's happening here. It's a sweet thing. It's an expression of love. It's not the full expression of love. It's not the complete, the deepest expression of love, but it's some expression of love. That's what a greeting does. There's affection there. There's a... There's a, um, a, a a desire for good that's communicated. I, you know, it's I hope you're well, and and I, and and it brings me uh, joy to and comfort to see you. 
and I and I and I am grateful for our fellowship. There's there's these things in the greeting. Um, there's there's fond thoughts, and there's regard for the relationship. So it's an expression of love to a real degree. You see that right here. You know, Paul takes the time to say the churches greet you. So that church knows they're 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 in it with these other churches. And then he gets more specific. He talks about Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla, as she's known elsewhere. And we, we get the story of when Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla in Acts chapter 18. He's in Corinth. He meets them in Corinth. They had come recently from Rome. They happen to be tent makers, and they're working together in the same business. They might have even gone into business together. It seems like they did from what we see there in Acts 18. And so they were living in Corinth at the time, and that's where the gospel started in Corinth, and when the church was formed. And now Aquila and Prisca are in Ephesus, where Paul's at. And so they're known by the church there, and so they send their greetings. And what's funny is, you know, Paul, he says the churches send their greetings, but he says Aquila and Priscilla send their hearty greetings. Hearty greetings. He adds that hearty to it. It's kind of an interesting term that he uses there. I don't know why. I guess I'm so broken by advertising throughout the course of my life, television advertising. So I, I, when I think of the word hearty, for some reason I think of chunky soup, Campbell's chunky soup, uh, because uh, I think back when I was a kid, they came out with that soup, and then they, they increased the, the meat in it, and I, I think they said, you know, it's, hearty, it's more hearty than ever, because it has more meat in it. That's a ridiculous association, but anyway... Um, yeah, there's more to it. There's more substance to it. Hearty greetings, because you know them and they know you. And so when they think of Aquila and Priscilla, there's, there's a, a bond and a love and a warmth. There's memory, um, the kindness of God in that relationship. And then the brothers, they send their greetings. That must have been Paul's co-laborers, maybe Stephanus and the other brothers mentioned by him, but maybe other brothers that they hadn't mentioned. So it's a whole family saying hi to one another. And Paul wraps this up. He says, greet each other with a holy kiss. He, you know, it's sort of this greeting and this, oh, the, this, this family reunion in a sense. And, 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 and he's saying, while, while I'm at it, make sure you're expressing your love to one another. What's interesting is you see the holy kiss in a few different places in the scriptures. There's never a description of it. And it's, and it's an interesting expression because a, it would have had a cultural uh, comparison, a common cultural expression. So, so in a sense, it seems like Paul's saying it's fine to use the conventions of the culture to greet one another. It's, it's how the people in this area greet each other. They greet each other with a kiss. Go ahead and do that. But he adds the word holy to it. So uh, it's a holy uh, expression. In other words, by all means, use the cultural convention but do so in a sanctified way. In other words, make sure that it's not inappropriate in any way. And so even in our changing times, uh, I think what we take out of this is that love has to be expressed. It can't just be thought or felt. It has to be expressed. We know this in, um, we know this in, um, in, in, in family relationships. Fathers have to tell their children they love them. It's not just enough to show them. Yes, yeah, some... People uh, say they love you so much, but they really don't show it, and that's not so good. That 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 works. That backfires. Others may show it well, and that's better than saying it a lot and not showing it all. It's better to show it a lot, even if you don't say it well. But really, we can grow to where we're doing both, right? Where we're showing it and we're communicating it, we're expressing it, and that's part of what's going on with the idea of the holy kiss doesn't have to be a kiss. We don't really do that. That would be kind of strange in our times. 
And frankly, uh, we're probably going to have to reevaluate some of the ways that we greet each other. I think this might be an appropriate time to say, going forward, I don't know what things are going to look like when we finally gather together. I do know that when we see each other, I don't think anyone should be insisting on their typical conventions of greeting. So I don't think anyone should say, I'm just a hugger, so you have to hug me. You know, that may be very considerate of yourself, but it might not be very considerate of the other. The other person may not think that way. And so it's more important, out of love for them, that you're aware of of, of what may or may not be a blessing to them. In some ways, I think we have to kind of restart our our greeting culture. We're going to have to figure this out. You can almost think of it like if you went to another culture where they never shook hands. Maybe they gave a little bow or, or greeted each other in some other way but they didn't necessarily shake hands. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I, I don't know what will be there. I'm, I'm a big proponent of warm greetings, and uh, I was always taught the handshake. I've always appreciated it, but maybe we need to look at that again. We can cross that bridge when we come to it. But, but the main point here is express love and do so in a way that is loving of others. And notice that Paul's going to write by his own hand here, and, uh, and, and then Paul goes on to say, if anyone, he, he does something a little surprising here. He's talking about all this love, expressing all this love, and then he says this. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then right after that he says, our Lord, come. Our Lord, come. So love is the subject again, but this time it comes from the negative side. If, if someone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Kind of a surprising way for Paul to finish this letter, and it seems kind of broad. It's like, wow, no love for the Lord? That can, can, you know, I mean, that's how you're going to end here? Don't you want to end with just good feelings? And Paul says, no, the Spirit has led me to put this warning in here at the end, near the end. Not at the very end, but near the very end. And uh, it can seem harsh, but I think we're to take this as it is, a helpful standard that's given to us. Because, you know, only we, can, only we know what's going on in our hearts. And, and the truth is, we don't even know fully all of our motives. We, we can fool ourselves pretty good, but only we know what's really going on in there. Us and the Lord. I mean, we can fool people. And that's not uncommon or unusual. And so, only we know, do I really love the Lord? Do I have any love for the Lord? It's interesting. He says, if you have no love for the Lord. So it's almost like he's saying... Um, if, if you have a little love for the Lord, you won't be accursed. But if you have no love for the Lord, let them be accursed. And that's an interesting standard, isn't it? And so we can ask ourselves a question, do I have any love for the Lord? And, and we certainly shouldn't, but we shouldn't play act like we have love for the Lord when we don't. And I think it can be dangerous because some of us are very sensitive, have very sensitive consciences and we can quickly say, well, I'm such a worm, I have no love for the Lord. You know, I, I never do anything good and even the good I do, you know, evil's right there with me. And so, you know, yeah, I go to church, I'm faithful to church, and yeah, I was baptized, and yeah, I come to the Lord's table, and yeah, I repent of my sins, and yeah, I confess, and yeah, I do good works, but but I have no real love for the Lord. And um and I and, and I think the good thing about this is as we wrestle through that, even for the one who's even for the one who has a sensitive conscience, as we wrestle through this, 
we can come to understand better and better what love for the Lord really is. So maybe ask this question as a starting point. Would you abandon Christ Jesus if there was no one to hold it against you? Would you abandon him? Um, My guess is you would not, brothers and sisters. Because when it comes down to it, the Lord has done this work in you. And he's not going to let you go. And you yourself know you can't walk away. You can't deny him. Because he's real. And he's done the saving work in us. But more to the point, and maybe more helpful, is the next phrase. You know, Paul says, if, if, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then he says this, he says, Maranatha. Uh, which, by the way, Maranatha is a Greek transliteration of Aramaic. It's an Aramaic word. And uh, it's translated here as, Our Lord come. In other words, a prayer that the Lord would return soon. And by the way, this is the only place where Maranatha is used in the New Testament. So, I think what Paul's saying here is if you love him, if you have any love for him, then you will want him to come. You will want to see his face. You will want the new age to begin. And so, I want to encourage you there. First of all, if you're saying, man, I'm no good at all, I just wish the Lord would come, I, I can't take it. Guess what? That's probably some love for the Lord. Because if you have no love for the Lord, you do not want to see him. He's the last face you want to see. In fact, you probably don't even believe in him. And so when his face shows up on the scene, that's going to be terrifying. But if you want to see him, if you're saying, oh Lord, please come, you've got some love for him. And uh, I want to encourage you, you know, have you given up? Have you, have you, are, you so, are you so discouraged in the Christian life? Uh, and, and you're, you're feeling like, you know, I want the Lord to come. I pray for him to come. I wish he would come and set all this right, but he never comes. And you're discouraged. I encourage you, don't give up. That tension that you feel, that desire for him to come, and, and the impatience, that struggle with, oh, I wish he would come, but he doesn't come. That's the right tension. You should feel that. It's a sign of love for Christ. And it's hard when he doesn't come. It's hard when you desire to see him, to arrive. You're waiting at the window, waiting for him to arrive. And uh, it doesn't mean that he's late or that the timing is right for him to come right now. Obviously, it's not right yet. But it's right to desire that he would come right now. And it's right to be patient for him to come. Just don't give up. It might be painful to be patient. Be patient. He will come. And Paul finishes up with these two things. He wants them to know the grace of the Lord, which will keep them till the day of the Lord, and the Lord to be present with them at all times. And he wants them to know that he loves them too in Christ Jesus. Dear friends, love one another so that the church stands firm and becomes useful in the gospel. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.